There was a whole stack of questions. We'll see how many I get to. I've arranged them in a kind of a an order, so um The first one is um, kind of related to the fact that we've switched our schedule today, so I'll start there. And this one is asking about something from the book Awareness Alone is Not Enough, something Sayadaw said about this kind of open schedule. So the the, uh, statement in the book here, uh, a yogi asks, when the mind feels balanced, especially in the afternoons, should I continue sitting or should I get up after an hour? And Sayadaw responds, you can sit longer if you want to. But I do not encourage people to sit for long periods of time. Don't sit for more than an hour and a half. People who like to, who like calmness are fond of sitting longer. Those who like awareness prefer activity. I encourage people to be active because it forces the mind to be, quote, on its toes, so to speak, and to really work at being mindful in the present moment. Unfortunately, we don't have yogi jobs here as you do in the West. (laughs) So here we have plenty of yogi jobs, and many of you are doing multiple yogi jobs. (laughs) So I'm I'm happy for us for that perspective. (laughs) But I think part of the the question here is around um, um, people who like calmness are fond of sitting longer, those who like awareness prefer activity. To me, I think this points to the, um, uh, the different ways minds are. You know, minds are different. Some minds naturally gravitate towards um, stability, calmness, uh, concentration, and other minds naturally gravitate towards investigation, um, uh, observation of changing phenomena. And um, Saito's observation is that those that like the, the concentration will tend to sit longer, and those who uh, who like the um, uh, observation of many objects prefer activity. I don't know that I completely agree with that statement because I like sitting, um, even though uh, my mind naturally gravitates towards the uh, the open awareness style. But I think really what this points to, uh, partly, I mean, partly Sayadaw is suggesting we be aware of our inclinations and um, recognize them. I mean, he's he's actually setting a line. He says, don't sit longer than an hour and a half. I'm not going to tell you not to, to sit longer. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say that. You know, sit as it feels appropriate for you. Um, But to to observe, to recognize, I think part of that is to recognize if you are sitting longer, understand the um, the motivation, understand what's happening in your mind, so that it's not just um, spacing out or kind of going into a. Uh, kind of sinking in. Sometimes with certain states of meditation, we just sink in and just like, time will go by really fast. And, oh, that's nice. You know, now it's time for dinner. Um, but there hasn't been much awareness or cultivation of um, 
recognizing what's actually happening. So the, the main exploration, I think, is to uh, know what's happening in your mind. Why are you sitting? Why are you walking? And then in the practice of checking in, am I aware? What am I aware of? One person asks about um, when we uh, are noticing what we're aware of, whether whether it's helpful to keep things really general, just at the level of, well, I know that I'm seeing or hearing or feeling something like that, or whether um, it's helpful to be a little more specific. And what I encourage is that you notice what's obvious for yourself. So, for example, um, if you are uh, noticing what's going on in the moment, you're you're just asking, what am I aware of? You may at times be aware very specifically of particular experiences, sensations, the, the mind may be naturally picking up on specifics. If the mind is naturally picking up on specifics, that's what you notice. If the mind is more generally, um, some, there are certain states of mind, for example, where uh, uh, particularly if the mind is more in the mode of being in awareness, then the objects begin to recede. You know, the specificity of the objects begins to recede, and then you're much more aware simply of seeing or hearing, and not so much of, um, um, you know, the specifics of what is being seen or, you know, what is being heard. But, you know, as we are engaged, so for example, you know, you're sitting and there's a sound, in some states of mind, that might just be experienced as, you know, you've been, you've been aware perhaps of body sensation and then there's a sound and the mind recognizes that it's been pulled to hearing or the mind recognizes that hearing is occurring. And that may simply be all that the mind really um, is interested in registering before the next object comes along. Um, at other times, the, uh, the awareness may pick up very precisely and see, for example, the whole process by which the mind will identify a sound. So there's a sound, for instance, and then perhaps um, an image in the mind that uh, identifies the sound as being the sound of a bird. So you may you know, see, for instance, an image of a bird sitting on a branch. You know, the mind has done that. So there's been the sound and then there's been the recognition of the sound as a bird through this image. We just uh, notice what the mind naturally is aware of. We don't have to try to keep it at a general level, nor do we have to try to find preciseness or specificity. I would encourage um, in the uh, asking of the questions... The asking of the questions isn't meant to um, 
create an articulated verbal response in the mind. It can do that. Um, you know, if, if you ask yourself, am I aware? What am I aware of? The mind might respond with um, saying, I'm aware of the sound of a bird. The mind might respond that way. But it's not intended that we consciously do that. It's not intended, it's, a, it's not part of the, the practice to consciously uh, speak or note in that way. So the encouragement towards asking the questions is to orient the mind to be aware in the kind of um, nonverbal way. So the asking of the questions is, is kind of just to help you sink into what's happening and to notice this is what's happening. Awareness is present. This is what awareness is naturally knowing in this moment. And then uh, related uh, to the asking of the questions, how frequently to ask that question, you know, how frequently do we ask these questions in our minds? Um, this is really, um, it depends on the level of momentum that's present. You know, I, I find the questions, the questions can be helpful at the beginning. And then as we get familiar with, as I think I said on, on the early days of the retreat, as we get familiar with what it means to be aware, what the experience of being aware is. It doesn't have to be so much that we ask the question consciously, but more that we incline towards that experience. It, it can be just, it, it's almost like a little, doesn't have to be words. Just this tiny little turning towards. So over time, the mind begins to understand how to orient towards awareness without asking the questions. Without, you know, bringing that technique of asking the questions in. So the technique is meant to support our... um, recognition of what awareness is help us to more naturally um, begin to to see the possibility of receiving experience rather than choosing what we're directing our attention to something um, so that those questions are meant to to point to that ca- capacity of mind and then once we understand that capacity we can kind of just simply almost orient towards those with a, with a, a wordless kind of uh, 
intention. And then as the momentum gets stronger, it's kind of like um, as we find ourselves coming into awareness, conditions have created the arising of awareness and that arising of awareness will have a kind of a natural momentum or a natural resonance to it. I used the analogy of the scooter on the first day, you know, that, um, you know, it's like tapping the ground and the, uh, the scooter just goes for a certain distance. It's also kind of like ringing a bell, you know, the, that coming into awareness is like the bell has been struck. And then the bell rings of its own accord for some period of time. It's kind of counterproductive. I mean, the the tone of the bell. You know, if you if the if the, the the ringing of the bell is actually what we're uh, interested in, to do that kind of gets in the way of the natural resonance of the bell. So we learn a little bit about when awareness arises. We begin to get familiar with. How long does it kind of naturally resonate for? It's like there's a, there's a natural extent almost of awareness that depends on conditions. It depends on how much you've been uh, cultivating awareness, how tired you are, how much you've had to eat. I mean, there's all kinds of conditions that come together that will influence uh, how long that awareness lasts. And so that's another way to explore um, the intention, the intention towards asking these questions or inclining towards awareness is to see if you can get familiar with, like now the bell has stopped ringing. So, time to hit it again. <laughs> and you might be able to, you know, um, get familiar with when the sound begins to really diminish and learn when is it time to keep it going. It takes some understanding or recognition of our mind and what it feels like to be aware, that, that kind of presence of awareness, and what it feels like as that presence begins to lose its, hmm, I don't know what the right word is, as it begins to get more vague, perhaps. It begins to be interwoven with uh, kind of little driftings out that we're kind of aware of. You know, Joseph sometimes says more or less mindful. It moves from being clearly present to more or less mindful. That's probably time to bring in the intention again.
And then in our what we're aware of, one of the things that we um, become aware of, and a really great thing to notice, our thoughts. Um, so there's a question about working with thoughts. And the question was relatively specific, and so I'll answer the specific question uh, as best I can. And um, then I thought, actually, I would spend a little more time on exploring that terrain. Um, it's a very rich terrain to get familiar with and to learn how to be aware in the terrain of thought. Because... We have to think to navigate our lives. If we think it's not possible to be mindful while we're thinking, there's whole huge chunks of life that are going to be off bounds. (laughs) So uh, it's really a helpful aspect of um, awareness to begin to cultivate. Again, the kind of notion of mindfulness can begin to infiltrate this terrain of uh, thinking. So the question is about uh, thoughts that arise that seem to be uh, almost intuitive or spontaneously helpful, answering a question that we hadn't even been um, uh, necessarily thinking about, but almost coming, bringing wisdom together that it's like, there's the answer to this question that has been kind of hovering but not really consciously being thought about. This happens to us in um, in meditation at times that we, uh, it's kind of that's how I got the answer to the mouse, right? I mean, I wasn't, I, I looked at the mouse and I was like, huh, can't figure that out. And just went into my meditation. It's like, poop, there's this image of the cover of the book. It's like, oh, you know. <laughs> That's why. That's why somebody put this mouse there. Um, so th- those kinds of things happen, that when we're open, available, receptive, um, sometimes thoughts, it's like, it's like a wisdom can be operating in the background, and when our mind is receptive and aware, that wisdom can surface and uh, give us some information. But the question is about how do we discern the distinction between that kind of thought and um, stories. Um, to me, it, it's a feeling. There's a feeling associated with that kind of thought. Um, often with, with stories, the mind going off into how am I going to solve that problem, Uh, How can I fix this, change that? What am I going to do about that? There's often tension associated with that. Whereas this kind of thought seems to arise more spontaneously and often comes with a sense of open-heartedness, non-contraction. So sometimes this kind of thought comes up around the practice itself. That uh, I've had this happen while meditating in the midst of meditation, suddenly I hear the voice of a teacher saying in my mind something they spoke to me a year and a half ago, and at that very moment, that is the instruction that helps me deepen. And so these kinds of um, 
thoughts will arise. And, you know, that that one was, you know, it, it actually felt, that one to me felt more like it was the expression of an intention to move in that direction towards noticing. In that case, it was noticing my relationship to dukkha. Notice my relationship to dukkha. That's what arose in, in my mind. Um, so I think I think we know how to discern these kinds of things. Then there's the question of acting on our thoughts. And, um, you know, with this kind of thought, it may be worth jotting down a note, you know, although my guess is you might remember it. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the particular question here had something to do with something back at home. So nothing in particular to do about it here and now. But perhaps, um, yes, you know, taking action on it when you get home. But one thing that's uh, important, I think, is to, n- to, to, to begin to see some of these thoughts, they ap- appear kind of spontaneously. It's, it's like there's it's wisdom bubbling up and just um, uh, arising in our minds. And we have a tendency when that kind of thing happens to leap on those things and think about them and really uh, proliferate and um, tell ourselves how wonderful it is that we've had this thought and how great it's going to be when we implement this thing and all these wonderful consequences that are going to happen as a result of doing that and how everybody's going to love me after this. And we're gone. We're no longer present and available for receiving the present moment. So that's something to take care of. This kind of thought can be um, a really sticky place for charging out of the present moment. So while they can be helpful to us, take care with them. See if you can, you know, if you, if sometimes thoughts like that arise and there's, there's this like, I'm never going to remember that. You know, when you you get i would i would prefer you not interrupt your sitting to jot down a note but at the end of the sitting after you've left the hall you know maybe take a note if you're afraid you're going to forget it that's fine and i i think i will um talk more about thoughts tomorrow Then on, um, somebody asked to, again, in our practice, elaborate a little bit about the um, things I mentioned about working with old habits of practice. Just to perhaps re-clarify or talk, uh, just restate the, the ways I mentioned Steve and I worked with this in our practice. So there were different different approaches Steve and I came to, I think, based on the different ways our minds work. So Steve's approach was when he noticed his mind engaged in doing something techniquey, you know, like his habit was to pick up techniques and do them. 
to do the noting, to uh, turn his attention to various areas of experience, something like that. He said when he noticed that, he let go of the doing. So that was that's kind of what I've uh, been pointing to in the area of when we see that there's a conscious involvement, when the mind is consciously engaged in doing something, what do we do with that when we see the mind is consciously engaged with doing something? And Steve, in his um, practice, found when he found he was consciously engaged in his uh, techniques, it was helpful to consciously relax, remind himself, relax the body, relax the mind, and then recognize that there's a kind of natural awareness that already is knowing, that techniques are not necessary for that natural awareness. In my own experience, um, the habit that I had cultivated of looking at the body, paying attention to the body, partly that had been cultivated because body experience, body vibration in particular, was pretty strong. It drew, it gravitated the attention that created the conditions for the mind to stay there. It cultivated more of it. So when this mind let go and stopped doing things, it gravitated towards paying attention to the body. And so from my perspective, I had already stopped doing. I I already was resting and just noticing what is naturally known. So to relax and notice what's naturally known, I'm back at body sensation. So Steve's approach doesn't meet my, the way my mind worked. So my own exploration, when Sayadaw pointed to me, he said, well, it's a habit. You know, consciously, he, he said, you have to consciously look at the mind. And that was, that felt like a lot of doing to me. So I did actually consciously look at the mind, but the way I did it was to just use the simple approach of, I, I, I allowed my mind and body to settle into its natural um, pattern, relax the body, relax the mind, notice what's obvious, that's body sensation, and then check the relationship. So it took me into that checking the mind, checking the attitude of mind. And lo and behold, I discovered there's plenty of other things happening than body sensation, but the mind had kind of narrowed down to just being uh, able to kind of notice the body sensations and wasn't so able to pick up on or recognize that calm was happening, ease, peace, happiness was happening. I was kind of unaware that those were going on. And so the the checking of the attitude helped me to uh, broaden what the mind was capable of noticing. And at this point, you know, I don't have to consciously do that so much anymore. The, the pattern, the habit, um, it does still kind of naturally start in the body, but very easily, it doesn't stick to the body so much anymore. So very easily it moves out and notices um, you know, how the mind is responding to things and emotions that are arising and um, uh, perceptions that are coming. So the, 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 the habit has been broken and, and the 
mindfulness when I relax and just notice what's aware of takes in a much broader range of experience. But it was necessary to consciously do something to break that habit for me. And then the other piece I brought in was what Shui Umin Sayada said to my friend who went and spoke to him uh, about um, his habit of mind to do the noting and to be with the breath. And Shui Umin Sayada's comment was, just watch the mind that does that. So just notice, this is the way the mind is functioning right now. You know, so you relax, what does the mind do? It pays attention to body sensation in my case. So that, was, that would have been another approach to recognize this is what the mind is doing already. That's another way to step into awareness of mind, to not just be attending to the object of body sensation, but to recognize the mind is knowing body sensation. So that kind of puts you back into the awareness. And then again, in the terrain of what we notice, of the practice, things that we experience, a couple of questions about feeling, one particularly about feeling of unpleasant pain and um, Yesterday in the talk I mentioned looking at the relationship between how our mind is with an unpleasant sensation and how that impacts the experience of that unpleasant sensation. So I think I probably said pain itself is an unpleasant experience. I mean, pl- uh, that, that uh, yeah, pain is generally, a, you know, basically an unpleasant physical experience. And um, that unpleasant physical experience is largely understood as being painful because of the attitude of mind. That's kind of hard to grok at times. It's... Um, as, as the note says, to me, pain is painful. It doesn't seem like an interpretation. Um, that this can take some exploration. Uh, it's been a surprise to me in observing what, what is pain, you know, observing, observing painful sensation, that as I recognize the mind, the aversion, the mind's participation. So, so noticing, I talked about noticing how the attitude influences the experience of pain um, and seeing that for moments the attitude of aversion can at times completely disappear. And then there's no aversion whatsoever, no sense of this is a problem And the experience doesn't have the same, it doesn't feel like pain anymore. What we call pain is largely a mental phenomenon. The unpleasant sensation 
is just an unpleasant sensation. And sometimes it can be a very strong unpleasant sensation, but not be experienced as what we call pain. So it's, um, it, it's not something you can do. It's not something you can decide, I'm going to stop experiencing this as pain and experience it as unpleasant sensation instead. But it can be understood by, again, seeing how the mind and body are interacting. So noticing the, uh, the aversion and as the aversion gets stronger and weaker, as it will, it won't, it won't be static, you will notice probably that uh, there will be a relationship with how the pain is experienced. The stronger the aversion, generally the stronger the pain. As the aversion weakens, the experience of pain weakens. Sensation may not weaken. Sensation may be just as strong, but the experience of pain, that, that's, it's, uh, just explore it and see for yourself. And then more general questions about feeling pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, which I talked a little bit about this morning. Um, the question comes uh, from some of what Sayadaw says in his books um, and this is he'll sometimes say something like and I've heard him say this even in, in group discussions where somebody says they're talking about how much they like walking in the woods you know how pleasant that is and he says that's greed and um you know there's there's this uh sometimes the um i d- i don't know exactly if sayada would say all vedana has defilement in it i don't think he would because you know at some point in one interview uh we were talking about this cuz he was he was encouraging us to recognize the the subtle defilements that are present around Vedana. And this is an incredible exploration, actually. You know, there are very, very subtle defilements that condition our minds to gravitate towards pleasant or unpleasant. Very subtle defilements that conditions our minds in that way. So I think he's encouraging that exploration. But in the suttas, you know, there's a, there is a text in the suttas where the Buddha specifically says... People who are ordinary people experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience. And people who are awakened, arhants, fully awakened, awakened, experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience. What's the difference between them? So his, his response there was that the ordinary person, when experiencing a pleasant sensation, they like it, they want it, they want more of it, they try to get it and hold it and keep it. When somebody experiences an unpleasant experience, they don't like it, they want to get rid of it, fix it, change it. They sa- he said when someone who's fully awakened experiences a pleasant experience, that person experiences a pleasant experience. When somebody awakened experiences an unpleasant experience, that person experiences an unpleasant experience. 
full stop. No reactivity to that. So um, it seems clear from the sutta perspective that feeling can arise and defilement not be present. Now I will say that the other understanding about this, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling that is referred to in that sutta, I believe, is referring to um, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, physical feeling from from the body. It's all a mental process, but a feeling coming from the body. You know, that the, 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 uh, the fully awakened person who c- cuts their hand with a knife is going to experience unpleasant vedana. That's not going to go away. The other um, side of this is that when the mind, if there's unpleasant mental vedana or pleasant mental vedana, so liking and not liking, for instance, liking having some subtle a pleasant vedana, not liking having subtle unpleasant vedana. There is a subtle greed aversion in that. That the description in the suttas uh, is uh, of somebody who's fully awakened is that the mind is just completely balanced. I think there's a statement, uh, you know, of no preferences. So it's a challenge for us. And um, I find hearing this particular teaching, it in our Western minds tends to produce, uh, I mean, I I haven't had a chance to discuss this with Sayadaw yet, but uh, it seems to produce um, self-flagellation. You know, I'm liking something. Oh, that means defilement is present. Oh, I'm bad. I have defilements in my mind. And I often, and, and Sayadaw actually too, he says, well, when liking is present, notice it. You know, the instruction isn't beat yourself up about it. It's recognize it. Liking is present. What's happening? You know, the more continuous the mindfulness gets, the more clear the understanding is. So liking is present. Enjoyment is present. If enjoyment is in present, is present, be with enjoyment. I found at one point, um, kind of a, a little bit along these lines, um, of seeing how the continuity of awareness began to reveal the subtle kind of, very subtle, I mean, it's a pretty subtle kind of clinging to some of these um, slightly, you know, leaning into experiences. So, many of you have had this kind of of, um, experience where you notice something going on in your mind, and um, 
you see its complete conditionality and you, it's like, wow, look at, there's that pattern again. And it's almost like, wow, isn't that cute? And the mind's doing that again, you know? And it's like, oh, look at that. It's doing that again. And I found myself seeing the mind do its pattern thing and, and kind of having this little amusement about, oh, look at the mind, it's doing that again. And then in the next moment, the mind clearly recognized amusement is arising. And in seeing the amusement, instantly both the amusement and the pattern disappeared. It was almost as if the amusement around seeing the pattern was subtly holding the pattern into place. Now that wasn't something I could have done, you know, but the continuity of mindfulness revealed the... um, I I saw, oh, this is amusement. Amusement is arising. And in recognizing that, the whole thing vanished. So that's not always going to happen. And at times, you know, you're walking in the woods, or no woods here so much, but walking in the garden, walking in the garden, enjoying the sun, the, the lovely day today. You know, there's enjoyment happening. Recognize enjoyment recognize that uh, that experience. Don't try to push it away. Don't, don't uh, believe. I mean, so what we do, I think, sometimes is we hear the teaching. It's like, oh, enjoyment. That means there's some defilement in the mind. Where's the defilement? And as I was talking about last night, you know, don't dig. You know, just be with the enjoyment. If there is a subtle defilement, the mindfulness may begin to reveal it if it's there. If the mindfulness isn't revealing it, don't worry about it. At some point, the mindfulness will get more continuous and more more subtle kinds of craving will become clear. Let's see. Let me have to skip a few questions here. I think I'll move on to, um, there were a couple of questions about conscious choice, which is something I've been mentioning. So I'm going to skip some questions. Sorry to those of you whose questions I miss. I can hold on to them for another time. So I think the first question is basically kind of just elaborating on what I mean about conscious choice. Um, Choice happens all the time. Every moment in our every moment of experience involves choice of some sort or other. 
much of the time those choices are below the level of our conscious awareness. I kind of, uh, you know, think of the subconscious as having some kind of a horizon. And um, much, much of our choices, the, the choices that we make, are happening below this level of what we're consciously aware of. Much of the time before we start to practice, those choices are conditioned by habit, conditioned by how we've behaved in the past, things that have happened to us in the past. So the, um, the untrained mind, much of the time, is acting from habits of greed, habits of aversion, habits of delusion. So the defilements are kind of running the show <laughs> in, the, in this, uh, this kind of subconscious way. As the mind moves into training, we begin to see, um, we begin to see with more continuity of mindfulness, we begin to see at times that there um, is an arising. We can begin to see the arising of an intention to act, to speak, for example. We see the in- arising of the intention to speak. And in seeing that impulse to speak, we can begin to see uh, a motivation behind that impulse. And... Um, because we've seen that impulse, we can decide. Because that impulse is now in consciousness and we see the, the motivation that's associated with that impulse, we have a, we have a little bit of a choice there. You know, that It is now in the realm of conscious activity as opposed to just kind of coming up from below the level that we're aware And what I see happens as we practice, the more continuous mindfulness gets, it's like the horizon of the subconscious gets lower and lower and lower, and we see more and more of the the choices, the more and more of the the, uh, choices become apparent to us. So we can begin um, to recognize when activities, intentions are being motivated from unwholesome directions and choose to not follow through on those. That begins to be a possibility. That begins, that, that, that begins to happen. And I've also been talking in this retreat a little bit about recognizing, becoming aware when our mind is consciously involved in its activities? When is it consciously involved in how the practice is being done? When is it consciously involved in um, the thoughts that are going on in our mind? You know, it's like sometimes, you know, like for instance, the example I gave before about, um, you know, a rising of a kind of a spontaneous uh, intuition. 
And then we start thinking about that. And sometimes that can be, there can be some conscious involvement with that thinking. Like this morning, for instance, I, a thought arose about um, they're going to be expanding the perimeter of the fence here. Um, it's going to make the, the, the area larger. And so my mind started calculating, you know, how much bigger is it going to be? How much longer is it going to be? You know, my mind started going into that. And it started doing the math, you know. It's like, okay, what's the equation? And it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> so at some point, the, the mind recognized it was consciously involved. I mean, there had been kind of a spontaneous arising of this, you know, uh, notion of the, the space expanding, you know, that that had just appeared. That was just a, something that had arisen in consciousness. And then the mind had jumped on it and become consciously involved with calculating. And, and so I let go of the, of the um, conscious participation in that. So one of the things I've been suggesting is to recognize when the mind is getting consciously involved and to recognize whether it's a helpful or an unhelpful conscious participation. You know, sometimes it can be a helpful conscious participation. The choice to keep reminding yourself to be aware, a conscious choice that is helpful. So, you know, recognizing when the conscious participation gets involved and seeing is there a wholesomeness or an unwholesomeness to that. When I noticed that kind of calculating, it was interesting because I stopped, I stopped the process of doing the calculating, but boy, it was so interesting how quickly the mind had jumped on the bandwagon of figuring out. That figuring out energy, I mean, I, I rested with it for a few minutes. You know, maybe it was more like 30, 40 seconds. I rested with this energy of figuring out without engaging in the conscious calculation. Calculation, But there was this, this push, ooh, figure, 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 figure. And there was a moment of a lapse of mindfulness. And the mind applied that figuring out to something else. So that energy of figuring out was, you know, it was still active. And that didn't take me long to see and... And then I could rest with that. But it was quite a potent force in the mind, that figuring out. You know, it took you know, a minute or two before it finally settled. Um, so when we let go of our conscious participation, there's you know, sometimes still that momentum that's already engaged. And the practice there is to just watch that momentum unfold, to, to, to allow it to come to its own natural conclusion. It's like if you throw a ball across the floor, you know, if you throw it really hard, it's going to go a long way. You know, you could try, you can get in the way of that and stop that momentum. But the, you know, the practice is, you know, can you kind of ride that, see that? It will, if there's enough space, that ball will come to a stop at some point. So this... um sense of conscious choice, it's not that everything becomes um, consciously decided in our lives at the more awake we get. Actually, it feels like the opposite. What's happening, in my understanding, what's happening is that um, what begins to replace the unwholesome 
habits of choice, the unwholesome habits that lead to choice, are replaced with wisdom. So the more wisdom we cultivate, the more wisdom is the ground out of which action naturally arises. This is the direction that the practice leads to. It, 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 it begins to feel like a very natural unfolding of wisdom, choosing, skillful action. But there's a large terrain in the middle of our practice where, well, I'll say one more thing about that. You know, at certain points, it feels when wisdom is operating. It's kind of mind-blowing, you know, it's like no one there making the choices, it's wisdom making the choices. So not, it's not me, it's not who I am, it's not, it's, it's just watching wisdom unfold. Like watching dominoes fall. Just the natural consequence of having engaged in cultivating wisdom. Wisdom arises and makes a choice. Wisdom arises and makes a choice. I'm not involved in that choice. No, no self involved in that choice. There's a large terrain in the middle where it feels like I have a choice. That's the sense. That's the feeling. If that's the sense that's arising, as best you can, choose skillfully. There's a... If it feels like you have a choice, choose skillfully. Much of the time, it doesn't feel like we have a choice. Actually, that's something that gets revealed the more we practice. It's like... Wow, who's doing this? You know, who's running this show anyway? <laughs> uh, and there are times when it does feel like I have a choice. So, in those moments, choosing as skillfully as possible and being aware of when it does feel like consciously I'm involved in it. Now that's, that's part of what I've been pointing to, is to recognize when does it feel like consciously there's the, uh, the engaged activity of, of doing something. When, do, when does that feel like it's happening? Notice that. It's helpful to notice when our conscious mind is involved in what's going on. And when it is, and we can be aware of that, we can support moving in a more skillful direction. A kind of a a little example, let's see. Uh, On... Conscious choice, which will answer another question. Um, you know, uh, when we are engaged in an activity like eating, and um, greed is present, 
You know, what's the, what's a, a helpful thing to do there? I mean, do we stop eating because greed is present? <laughs> so recognizing, you know, so there's a conscious choice to eat. Perhaps this greed is arising. There, there could be some conscious participation in the greed. But often those kinds of um, uh, states are, are kind of arising more from that subconscious level. And so recognize that greed is present while you're eating. Recognize that. Know that that's happening. You may be able to, in that process, um, one of the one of the one of the the tools I like to use sometimes when there's a mental state active um, is recognizing that clearly recognizing that that mental state is active, but trying to um, function in my world with the opposite quality. So, um, you know, eating with greed often involves, um, you know, chewing a bite, liking it so much, you're picking up the next bite to put in your mouth before you finish the first one. So, you know, one exploration might be to see what it might mean to recognize, clearly recognize the greed is happening. But engage in eating in a way that you would imagine someone who was very at ease would eat. Now this is a doing, you know, this is a a choice, but this is, again, this is where conscious choice comes in. You know, how how can we... um, and so, you know, rather than eating in a way that perpetuates the cycle of greed, is it possible to eat in a way where the greed is known but not acted on? So to not act on the greed wouldn't, nece- wouldn't necessarily mean stop eating, but stop eating in a greedy fashion. So to playing with that, playing with that kind of idea. And then just see this last one. Um, I'll just say a few words about... um, It's a question about love and um, emptiness, basically. And... um, what uh, I'm just going to say a few words about this, just kind of my kind of take on uh, on this. Um, the stronger wisdom arises, the more there is understanding, the more clearly we recognize the conditioned nature of experience. The mind recognizes the empty nature of experience, empty of self, empty of. Uh, me, mine, seeing just things as a process unfolding. So the wisdom kind of attunes to emptiness in a way. The wisdom also attunes to recognizing dukkha 
And, you know, in some ways I see when the wisdom is attuned to seeing things unfold as a process, the mind attunes to the empty nature of experience. When the wisdom is attuned to seeing dukkha, recognizing suffering, this is suffering, the mind attunes in a way to the compassionate heart. There's a teaching in Tibetan Buddhism about absolute and relative reality, about, um, you know, that, that emptiness is the kind of the, 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 the absolute truth, that things are just conditioned, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's like, but just suffering arises, suffering passes away, suffering arises, and, and there's, you know, it's, it's not a problem. Um, the relative reality is in the realm kind of more of um, heart-to-heart connection, meeting people, recognizing the suffering that happens in the world. And these two are kind of like two sides of a coin in a way. You can't cut the coin in two and say things are only empty. When the heart understands the empty nature of experience, when that heart attunes to connection, love and compassion are the result, are, the, are what's naturally there. So, you know, the definition of freedom of Nibbana in the Theravadan texts is the absence of greed, aversion, delusion. It's a really simple definition. Just the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. That's freedom. And when that freedom is present, when that, fr- when that freedom is there, when those states are absent, it seems that beautiful qualities of mind naturally arise. The mind, with the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion, naturally the heart opens to love, compassion, joy, equanimity. Kind of like the, those qualities are the, the emotional terrain that the awakened heart lives in. And coming back to intention in a way, to, to bring it back to this notion of intention, these, this field of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity become the motivations, become the you know, wisdom we, we become motivated by wisdom, which is in, you know, feels informed in a way, or feels connected to, I guess is a better word, feels connected to love, feels connected to compassion. So I don't see them as uh, separate, but more how are you looking, how are you turning to look. So, should stop. <laughs>